Welcome to the Bethesda Church Podcast. We're so glad you've joined us today. If you'd like to contribute financially to this ministry, you can do so at BethesdaChurch.tv slash give and simply select the giving option that works best for you. Thanks again for joining us. We hope you enjoy today's message. Thank you so much for the morning giving. At this point... I'm going to introduce our guest speaker for today. Not only does he serve on our amazing staff, but it is my honor to call Pastor Sam a great friend of mine. So, Bethesda, let's stand up and give him a great big hand as he comes to bring the word this morning. Love you, buddy. Yeah, well, thank you. Well, good morning, church. Or should I say, come on, church! (laughs) Hey, if you're new here today, I apologize. I do that pretty much every single Sunday. So, <laughs> um, But yeah, my name is Sam, and I am the worship pastor here at Bethesda Church, and I just want to say that I'm so thankful and so humbled to be able to speak to all of you today. Thank you to Pastor Chad and Pastor Karen for allowing me the opportunity to do this. It's cool. I get to stand up here a lot uh, throughout the year, but never like this. So it's a really cool opportunity to be able to do this uh, so as we show, uh, as we get into today's show of hands, how many of you have ever used a GPS before? You know what I'm talking about? Okay, a lot of you guys have. Some of you didn't raise your hands, though. For those of you who didn't raise your hands, I just want to make sure that you do know you're in a church. Uh, if you got here by accident, food line is across the road, and a Hardee's is right there. <laughs> no, I'm only kidding. Um, for those of you who didn't raise your hand, I'm glad you're here today. This, uh, these GPSs, right, these beautiful little pieces of technology have the ability to take you to places that you've never been before. In the palm of your hand, you have the personal guide to wherever it is that you want to go. They update in real time. They can adjust for traffic. They can end up saving you a ton of time on the road. But another question for you, how many of you have ever been tricked by GPS before? Y'all know what I'm talking about? Yeah? <laughs> you ever just wanted to throw it out the window? Hmm. You know, you type in your destination, probably somewhere that you've never, ever been before, and you go on your way, and then, well, you're about 75% on your way, and you realize that this handy-dandy little square box is taking you on a road that is closed, or even worse, a place that you never intended to go in the first place. And if you've ever been there, that can be a pretty scary situation. A few years back, that happened to me, so let me share with you. Uh, a few years back, I, uh, I was asked by my dad to head toward Tazewell, Virginia uh, to pick up some supplies for a project that he was working on. And, and I'd been on this trip quite a few times before, uh, but this is the first time that I'd ever went at it alone. So I thought I'd better be safe and sorry, and I punched in the destination on my GPS, and this was before all cell phones had GPS. I'm not that old, but I'm old enough to remember that. Um, well, I immediately noticed that it wanted me to head on a brand new route that I'd never been on before. And uh, being the curious person that I am, I decided to go. And the trip generally only takes a couple hours from my mom and dad's house. Well, about three and a half hours later, (laughs) I got myself into a bit of a mess. (laughs) This thing took me through the most crazy West Virginia back roads that I have ever driven, way up into the mountains and across some places I hope I never have to go back to again. Y'all, I was way up in the holler. You know what I'm talking about? You ever been back in the holler? 
So while I'm driving on these winding roads, I come around a steep curve on this unmarked mountain road, and right in the middle is this enormous tree that has fell in the road the night before. Well, this thing was massive, and there was no cell signal for me to call for help. Remember, I'm in the mountains, and uh, so I didn't know what to do. I waited, and I waited. Cars would come, cars would go, and I, st- I stayed there. Well, after about 45 minutes, some good old mountain folk came riding up the holler on an ATV with a chainsaw and rope. Now listen, if you're not from West Virginia, that's a terrifying situation to be in. If you're from West Virginia, that's a terrifying situation to be in. But after some maneuvering, they uh, were able to cut the tree up enough to move it out of the road, and I was on my way. Thank God for good old mountain folks sometimes, y'all. Now, (laughs) I tell you all that, I tell you all that to say this. Life is a process. One filled with twists and turns and trees in the road and mountain folk with chainsaws and rope. I was given the freedom to choose what path I traveled that day. I chose my own path, which led me to many, many detours. But how many of you know if I'd have chose the path that my father wanted me to go on, my outcome would have been much different. So today, I just want us to take a look in Scripture at a few examples of how God shows us that he's the God of the process and what your response should be when you're going through those difficult seasons of life. And I know that each and every one of you in here today can relate to the phrase, I'm going through it right now. You been there? Look at your neighbor and say, neighbor, life is a process. Hmm. I hope by the end of today you can see just how much God cares about you right where you are and how important that this process called life is to accomplishing his plan. So my talk today is simply titled, The God of the Process. And uh, before we jump in, I want to uh, talk about the first thing, which is the promise of the process. No better place to start than the beginning, so let me lay the story out for you really quickly. In Genesis, um, God, um, God creates all things. He creates man in his image. He, he places man in the garden. And uh, he, he makes this beautiful promise with mankind, and he's so proud of his creation, and he says, all of this is yours. All of this is yours, as long as you don't do this one thing. Just don't, don't take from this tree called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, lo and behold, we're not so good at things, and we took from that tree of knowledge and good and evil, and then broke the promise that God had made with mankind, and that entered mankind into a thing that we call sin, and also the fall of man. Well, a little bit later, about 12 chapters later, enter a man named Abraham. God sought Abraham out and made a covenant or a promise with him that through his lineage, through his family, that he would be the father of many nations and that the whole world would be blessed through Abraham's family. So let's jump in. Genesis 15, 1 through 6 reads, Now after this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I'm your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? Then Abram said, You've given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, and it said, This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. 
He took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And Abraham, Abram believed the Lord and credited it to him as righteousness. Now hear me. Abraham was 75 years old when he received this promise from the Lord. That's a long time to wait. If you're 75 years old in here and you've had to wait for anything, you've been waiting for a long time. After 10 more years, though, there was still no sign of fulfillment in sight. He and his wife, Sarah, couldn't conceive a child. And at this point, Abraham takes matters into his own hands and sleeps with his wife's maidservant, Hagar, who she gave to him as a wife, which was apparently a thing that you could do way back when. Uh, but as many of you know, yeah, that, I have to clarify. As you know, that creates a whole mess of problems through the birth of Abraham's son, Ishmael. And for those of you who don't know, Ishmael is considered to be the patriarch of Islam. So Genesis 16, 4 through, uh, 4 through 6, Scripture says, He slept with Hagar and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress, which was Abram's wife, Sarah. And then Sarah said to Abram, you're responsible for the wrong I'm suffering. I put my slave into your arms, and now that she knows she's pregnant, she can't stand me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think's best. You know, that's a man trying to get out of a situation. <laughs> so Sarah said... I'm going to mistreat Hagar. And Hagar said, I'm out. Bounced. It continues on in 11, through t in 11 to say, the angel of the Lord also said to her, and this is uh, Hagar in this moment, you are now pregnant. You'll give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He'll be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. He will live in hostility toward all his brothers. <clears throat> so Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. And the next chapter, chapter 17, goes on to let us know that at the ripe old age of 99, angels visit Abraham and confirm to him the promise from 25 years earlier will come to pass. And at the age of 100, Abraham and Sarah miraculously conceive a son named Isaac. Now, disclaimer, I need you to hear this. It's important that you do not confuse a promise with a desire. Big difference. Example, even after losing 100 pounds over the last year, I still desire junk food. It still tastes really good. A brand new donut shop has just opened up in Fairly, and I am this close. Ha <laughs> ha. But how many of you know that that doesn't help me accomplish the healthy body that I promised myself way, way back when I started? Success always takes sacrifice. Many times in my life, I thought that I heard uh, from the Lord, and I thought I heard him correctly, but in reality, I put his words through my own filter of expectation, my own desires, and my own outlook on the universe that he created, not me. But our emotions can be so tricky so we have to make sure that we're truly hearing from the Lord. And not only that, but we have to remember that it's easy for us to misunderstand what he's trying to say because of those filters we put on him. And I've been guilty of that plenty of times too. And as the fun-loving, creative type that I tend to be on days that end with why, um, I tend to romanticize things. Uh, but God's very clear in Scripture when he says in Isaiah 55, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, 
Neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Abraham's desire to have a son made him impatient with God's timing. Abraham rushed the promise from the Lord. It's so interesting to me that pregnancy is the theme that ties this whole story together because much like a pregnancy, rushing the timeline and birth of a child before its intended time can lead to a host of unforeseen issues. And this is so important because we're talking about the difference between a promise and a desire is the difference between birthing an Isaac and an Ishmael. Listen to me. When God makes you a promise, you can take it to the bank. He's not in the business of broken promises. He's never failed, and he won't start now. Do you believe that he's the God who never fails today? Me too. Here's the big takeaway from Abraham. In order for you to understand the promise in your process, you have to realize that there's a process to your promise. Through all of this, note that God never asked Abraham to figure it all out. He wanted him to trust, and he wanted him to wait. Listen to me. God has a purpose for everything you're going through. And if you can't see it right now, just be still and know that he's God. Know that he's in control. And in your waiting, you'll discover God's purpose for your process. Which brings me to my second point of the day. The purpose of your process. Before we get too far into this next part, it's important that I set up the story for you. I'm, I'm about to show you the story of a man who was given almost unimaginable circumstances, yet because of his faithfulness, he received his purpose. Let's take a look. There are three books in the Bible known as the wisdom literature, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. The first, Proverbs, showed us that God is wise and just. Yeah, we learned that God has ordered the world so that it's fair. The righteous are rewarded, the wicked are punished. In other words, you get what you deserve. But then we meet Ecclesiastes who observes, well, people don't always get what they deserve. Uh, yeah, he said the world isn't always fair, that life is unpredictable and hard to comprehend, just like smoke. And this makes you wonder, okay, well, is God wise and just? Exactly. And so it's that question that is being explored in the final book of wisdom, Job. All right, let's dive in. So Job begins with a strange story that takes place up in the heavens, which are described something like a heavenly command center. So God is there with these angelic creatures called the sons of God, and they're all there reporting for duty. And God points out this guy Job, his servant, showing how righteous and good he is. And then one of these angelic creatures approaches. He's referred to in Hebrew as the Satan. The Satan. Who is this? Well, this word is actually a title, which literally means the one who is opposed. So out of this whole crew, he is the one questioning how God is running the world. And he proposes that Job might not actually love God, that he's only a good person because God rewards him. If God were to take away all of the good things he gave to Job, then we would see his true colors. So he thinks Job is just working the system? That's exactly right. Maybe he's obeying just to get what he wants. So God agrees to this experiment, 
and allows the Satan to inflict suffering on Job. And Job loses everyone and everything that he cares about. It is devastating. And remember, he deserves none of this. God himself said so. The remarkable thing is that in the midst of all this suffering, Job still praises God. At least for chapters one and two. But then in chapter three, we find out how he's really feeling inside. He unleashes this poem that reveals this devastation. It's a long, elaborate curse on the day that he was born. After this, some of Job's friends come to visit him to offer their help. And all of them are like, Job, you must have done something horribly wrong to deserve this. After all, we know God is just, and we know the world is ordered by God's justice and fairness, so you must be getting what you deserve. And for the next 34 chapters, the friends and Job go back and forth in very dense Hebrew poetry. His friends keep speculating about why God might have sent such suffering, and they even start making up lists of hypothetical sins that Job must have committed. But after each accusation, Job defends his innocence. And Job is innocent. He is. He's also on an emotional roller coaster. At some moments, he's very confident that God is still wise and just. Yeah, in other moments, he's doubting God's goodness. He even comes to accuse God of being reckless, unfair, and corrupt. So by the end of the dialogue, Job demands that God come and explain himself in person, and God does so. He comes in the form of a great storm cloud. Now, God doesn't give Job a direct answer. He doesn't tell Job about the conversation with the Satan. Yeah, he does something very different. He takes Job on a virtual tour of the universe. He shows Job how grand the world is, and he asks him if he's even capable of running it or understanding it just for a day. He shows Job how much detail there is in the world, things that we might see every day but really don't understand at all. But God does. He knows it all intimately. He pays attention to the beauty and operations of the universe in ways that we haven't even imagined and in places that we will never see. Then to conclude, God shows Job two wondrous beasts and brags about how great they are. Yeah, they are dangerous. I mean, they would kill you without even thinking about it. And God says they're not evil. They're actually a part of his good world. And then that's it. That's God's whole defense. It's kind of weird. I mean, what was this all about? It seems to be this. From Job's point of view, it looks like God is not just. But God's perspective is infinitely bigger. He's dynamically interacting with a whole universe of complexity when he makes decisions. And this is what God calls his wisdom. So Job asking God to defend himself is actually kind of absurd. He couldn't comprehend this kind of complexity even if he wanted to. So where does this leave us? Well, it leaves Job in a place of humility. He never learned why he suffered, and yet he's able to live in peace and in the fear of the Lord. But that's not where the book ends, because after this, God restores to Job double everything he had lost. And this, again, is surprising. I mean, is this a reward? Is God saying, congratulations, Job, you passed this elaborate test? No. I mean, the whole book just made the point that Job losing everything was not a punishment. And so now getting it back isn't a reward. So why does he get it back? Well, apparently, God, in his wisdom, decided to give Job a gift. We don't know why. 
But what we do know is that Job is now the kind of person who, no matter what comes, good or bad, he can trust God's wisdom. And that's the book of Job and the end of our wisdom series. These biblical books of wisdom are amazing. Each one offers a unique perspective on the good life, and you need to hear all of them together as you learn to live with wisdom and in the fear of the Lord. I wonder if there are any of you in here today that can relate to Job. Maybe you have no idea why you're going through the trials that you're going through right now. There's that age-old question of, why do bad things happen to good people? I wonder if there are any of us in here today that, like Job, doubted God's goodness while we were in the middle of our mess. Truth is, bad things and good things, they happen to all people, despite of whether or not they're perceived as good or bad. Life happens to all of us. It's just part of being alive. That's as real and as honest as I can be with you. I think it's important here to see that we don't always get to know the why behind why things happen the way that they do. Yeah, but here's what we can do. We can trust that God is infinitely wise and believe in our hearts that he's completely in control, especially when we don't see it. That's a double-edged sword because I believe that there are so many blessings God has given us that we don't see. Things he shielded us even when we don't deserve it. Like when you're driving 85 on the interstate because you're 18 minutes behind because you set your alarm for p.m. instead of a.m. How many of y'all been there today? Uh, and uh, you're staring straight at your phone and you've already cut off three people, two of which you had no idea about because you're staring at your phone. And by, by somehow, by his grace, you pull into our parking lot this morning here at church and you see the smiling faces of the men and women on our parking team and you look at them and you say, I'm doing fine, brother. God's good. Y'all don't even know what he saves you from on the daily, okay? My name is Sam, and I am your friend. <laughs> Thank God for his wisdom and his love, even in the things we can't see. Trusting God when you cannot see grows your faith. Amen? Scripture even says... Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. God uses your process to discover your purpose. I think that what God's trying to tell us, especially through those wisdom books and especially Job, is that pain is an unavoidable but an integral part of our process. Which leads me to our last stop, the pain in your process. At the end of our rope and at the deepest places of our mess lies the one thing that connects all of humanity, your pain. We don't like to talk about it, but it's as real as the air that we breathe. The tough thing about it, though, is that if we can't talk about it, your pain only gets worse and worse and worse and eats you alive. Pain is perhaps the most significant part of the process. There are those of us sitting in this room today that know pain way too well, whether it's spiritual pain, emotional pain, physical pain, the pain of loss, or the pain of never having anything worth losing. We know pain. We've all felt the realness and the rawness of pain, and whether you've realized it or not, pain is important, and here's why. Look at your neighbor and say, God uses your pain to accomplish his plan. 
Let me set the scene really quickly for you because I want to point to a man named Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, Jesus already knows at this point that some terrible things are about to happen to him. He already knows that Judas is uh, going to betray him. He's actually in the middle of it right now. And these are his last moments before he's brutally tortured, murdered, mocked, beaten by the very people he came to set free. Scripture says in Matthew 26, verses 36 through 46, Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Y'all know those are the words of a man who's in a lot of pain and feeling a lot of pressure. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples, and these again are the guys who are supposed to be keeping watch because guards are coming to take him and kill him. He found them asleep. He said, couldn't you keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation or back to sleep. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed something a little bit different. He said, my father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. And so he said, okay, whatever. And he left them again and went away once more and prayed for a third time, saying the same thing again. This is some desperation. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come. The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. And there comes Judas with the guards. And there they come and take Jesus away and begin to crucify him. That's the beginning of that process. Jesus in the garden, the wine press or the garden of suffering, as it's referred to, didn't want to have to endure the pain that he knew was on the way. But because of his immense love for us, He understood that he must endure torture until death for God's will to be done. Listen to me. If not for the grueling process of Calvary, we would have no chance to be reunited with our Father, our Creator in heaven. You want to know what I think is so incredible about all of this, though? If you look back to the beginning of Scripture with Abraham, God's unconditional promise to him said that he would be the father of many and that all the peoples of the world would be blessed through Abraham's family. The cool thing is you can trace the lineage of Abraham through Isaac all the way down to a man named Jesus who restored God's ultimate promise to the world so that through him all have the opportunity to believe that he's the perfect son of God and through him the relationship that we broke in Genesis could be restored. That's this thing we call the gospel or the good news. I need you to hear me on this one thing. Jesus ended his life on earth through one final act of servanthood, giving up his perfect and holy life in exchange for my imperfect mess. Mark 10, 45 even says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That was Jesus' words. What kind of love is that? 
That's the kind of love of a father who understands the hurting and the suffering and the pain in order to fulfill the greatest calling of all, to save mankind from itself and to offer hope for all of those who would believe that he is the holy and perfect son of God. That's the kind of love that understands the power, the purpose, and the pain of the process. This is heavy stuff. I understand. It's not mushy. It's messy. But God loves us, especially in our mess. I like to ask for my worship team to come back up on stage and help me close out this morning. I kept it short. I need to hear me. God is the God of the process. He created us to worship him and find his beauty and his mystery at every moment of it. I need you to hear me. The promise keeps us looking ahead. The purpose gives us hope for right now. And the pain helps us remember where we've been and propel us to where he needs us to be. It's all part of his design. It's God's way of saying, I've never left you. I've never been more close to you than I am right now. I won't leave you. I won't forsake you. Church, I want every person in this room that can to stand with me. We're bringing it home. Jesus made a way so that our lives have eternal meaning. That every moment of our existence points to God's glory. All that he asks of you is to believe in your heart that he is who he says he is and begin a life of servanthood that brings God glory and nothing else. So with every head bowed and every eye closed in this room today, I just have one thing to ask. If you haven't made that commitment today, no matter where you are in life, I'm urging you to take that step right now. I believe in my heart God has brought you to this place, to this moment in time because of his promise to you to find your purpose and to accomplish his plan for your life. Your life's not over. You're not unworthy. You're loved. Some of you have allowed your pain to hold you back for years, man. And I believe that today God's wanting you to lay it down in surrender. If that's you today, take some time right now. I want you to ask Jesus to change your heart. And that's a big step. That's a huge part of your process. If you're in this room or online today and you want to make Jesus the Lord of your life and say, I'm ready. I'm ready to let go of my pain. I want you to just throw your hand up right where you are. I'm not going to embarrass you. I understand how personal this decision is. I see those hands. I see that hand behind you. Come on, don't miss this moment. Don't miss this moment today. You don't have to be where you are. Anybody else? If you raise your hand, look at me. Romans 10, 9 through 10 says, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it's with your heart that you believe and are justified, and with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. Church, I want us to pray with the hands that have gone up today, 
There's no magic in this prayer, only the truth of who Jesus is and what he said about you on the cross. It's important, though, that you speak it and believe it in this moment. So as, a one, as one voice, as one body, I want us to pray this. Lord Jesus, for too long I've kept you out of my life. I know that I'm a sinner, and I cannot save myself. No longer will I close the door when I hear you knocking. By faith, I gratefully receive your gift of salvation. I'm ready to trust you as my Lord and Savior. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming to this earth. I believe you are the Son of God who died on the cross for my sins and rose from the dead on the third day. Thank you for bearing my sins and giving me the gift of eternal life. I believe your words are true. Come into my heart, Lord Jesus, and be my Savior forever. Amen. Church, let's celebrate what God just did in this place today. That's amazing. Yeah. He's so good. So what happens next? What's your next step in your process? Where do you go from here? Well, I'm glad you asked. You start to follow the proven path of success that the leadership of this church has put into effect to grow you and help you become exactly who God says that you are. Listen, church, we here at Bethesda exist for four reasons. Number one, so that you can know God. What just happened in this place through salvation is knowing God. We want you to continue to develop a close personal relationship with God, and we help you do that through our Sunday morning worship experiences. If you say, okay, I'm here, I'm doing that, well, now what? Well, number two, we want you to find freedom by joining a connect group. Groups are opportunities for you to do life with others here at Bethesda and for you to develop relationships with other believers that you have the opportunity to worship with every time that we gather as a body. Lucky for you, groups launch in just a few weeks, and I can't wait to get some more information out to each and every one of you because groups will change your life. If you're new here or you've been in a group or you're just looking for your next step, Step number three is we want you to discover your purpose. If you're in a connect group and you've experienced how life-changing it can be, your next step is to go through our next steps class where you get to better understand your gifting, your personality, and your purpose. Actually, next steps is happening right now at this moment, and it's so amazing that there are people taking their next step right now. And the next one that comes around, if you've not done that, yeah, come on. If you've not done that, it's time for you to take your next step. And finally, once you finish the next steps class, it's time for you to start serving on our dream team. And number four, make a difference. We believe that we're never more like Jesus than when we serve. We looked at it just a minute ago in Scripture. Jesus himself said that. Our dream teamers are the hands and the feet of Bethesda Church. They're the heartbeat. They're what we do and who we are, and we are thankful for them. If you've taken all those steps and you're ready or you don't feel like you're ready, it doesn't matter. I want you to take some time to talk to one of our staff about leading a connect group or stepping up or stepping back on a team. 
and growing in your faith by growing others around you. What I'm getting at here today is that no matter where you are, you always have a next step. And we want to help you go further, further than you could ever go by yourself. We're here to help you take one more step today, right now. We're ready for you. Now, I know this. For a lot of you, your next step's toward this altar. You've been holding on to pain for way too long. It's been holding you back, making you stagnant. And you've been living in fear. So as our staff and our prayer team come, I want to make sure that you know this altar is open this morning and that we want to pray with you wherever you are in your process during this final song. And if you gave your life to the Lord today, we want to celebrate that with you. There's a card in the back of your seat that lets us know exactly who you are and what happened. Or if you know you need to take your next step today, fill one of those out because we want to help you move that much further. You can just leave it in your seat when you're done and we'll take care of the rest. Let me leave you with one more thing, church. It wouldn't be a worship pastor talk without some worship stuff, right? But truthfully, this whole thing is worship. Worship is a non-negotiable through every part of your process. Worship will posture your heart in a place of surrender. And at that place, that's where you'll find freedom. You believe it? I love you all, and I'm thankful for the opportunity to speak to you today. Bethesda, let's give God the biggest praise we've gave him all day today. Come on, celebrate the Lord. Thanks for listening to this week's message from Bethesda Church. We hope you'll stay connected by following us online. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and our website, BethesdaChurch.tv. Thank you for joining us, and have a great day.